live in a world that is getting bigger and at the same time getting smaller in a lot of ways. As we have access to more information, to more people, whether in high status or in forgotten places, or have more access to more places, we're also individually able to access all of those things faster and easier. And so in that way, it seems like it's getting a little bit smaller. I once heard a pastor, and I, I can't for the life of me remember who it was. I've tried to cite it to somebody, but then haven't been able to find out. I don't, I don't know, some interview, YouTube video. I'm a millennial. That's how I learn. <clears throat> I might have heard it in a dream sometime. Who knows? But I'm not willing to give myself credit for it. So said that the world is gra- growing rapidly more instant, constant, mobile, and global. Instant, constant, mobile and global and this shaped the way that I kind of view some of this shift in the world it's changing but it's also changing rapidly and I think maybe uh, one of the pitfalls we can uh, wind up in sometimes is uh, we, we can tend to place value on that change and so when we look at it man everything is going to pits with all these changes happening in the world, I think that, that might not be some of the right response. And, and if we just dive blindly into these changes and continue to escalate how quickly this world is changing, that might not be the right response either. I think at Redeemer, what we've uh, aimed to believe is that God has sovereignly placed us right here in this moment. And so I think it's not so much the changes that are troublesome for me. But I think sometimes what troubles me most is that in the midst of all of these changes, we end up losing ourselves in it oftentimes. And I'm super expressive and I don't want to destroy this iPad, so. <clears throat> what troubles me is that in the midst of all these change, sometimes we lose ourselves in it. Think about it. Maybe for you this morning, or other times in your life, you've experienced what it is um, when what once you knew with certainty, that can end up kind of shaken by a harsh new reality in something that happened in the world. Or, or maybe what once you felt was actually meaningful and, 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 and weighty has lost its weight. And you've ended up jaded. You just walk through life with this just jaded fog over you of sometimes it just man things are not meaningful or weighty anymore or or maybe what skills you once mastered and and were really useful and you're able to navigate this world and this life they they become more useless and and you've lost your sense of, of role or place in this world or maybe even most dangerously what once captured your or our wonder can seem plain or worse than that, maybe even boring. And, and you ask, why? I don't know if I have all of the answers, but I, I'm willing to bet that most everybody in here is sitting in one of three places right now. One, you've never heard or believed the gospel that I hope to preach this morning. And you have no idea what you just dove into. And I'm sorry you have to listen to me, but this is where you're at, so just trust the sovereign will of God in that. 
Number two, you've, you've heard the gospel, you, you have heard, you have believed, but you've lost your palate for it. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is not something that's become habitual for you. And so you find yourself in some of those other places that we uh, talked about, maybe just jaded or shaken or lost your role in this world. Or maybe you're in the third spot where you have tasted, have seen that the Lord is good, and this morning are tasting and are seeing that the Lord is good, and you're doing okay. And sometimes we neglect that when we're preaching. And I, I want to recognize that. Like, that's okay place to be. You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and you're hungry for more. And I hope that's where most of us are this morning. I don't know if it is. But I hope to bring this gospel that addresses, if you've never heard it before, that you see it, hear it, clearly this morning if you've lost your palate for it you're rejuvenated and that energy and and that palate is refreshed and renewed and you taste and see that the Lord is good and I hope that if you taste and see right now that the Lord is good that you get more of it <clears throat> this has been one of the, our goals as a church as family pastor I'm in that role now we, we hope to, to do this in every area and stage of life, in children and in students. And now, today, this morning, in this service. Here's one example. With uh, Redeemer Student Ministry, RSM, we're, uh, on Wednesday nights, we're going through a series. And, and we just wanted to cling and hold fast to this gospel. And so our series is literally called, What is the Gospel? That's where we're going with it on Wednesdays. On Sundays, as we've walked through the book of Joshua, uh, RSM students, you guys can help me out on this. One of the themes that we've seen just weaving through every single story and narrative in the book of Joshua is that the biggest threat to faithfulness is forgetfulness. Some of y'all catch up with these students one day, I hope, man. Here we go. Y'all get me pumped up. I, I saw that too often I found myself assuming the gospel as I sought to teach biblical truths. And we've made a commitment as a church not to do that. From birth to graduation, we have aimed to not assume the gospel, but to teach it and have it be central to every single thing that we do. And now, this morning, I hope, is a moment from graduation to the grave that we're doing the same thing. If we miss this, the centrality of this gospel, the beauty of it, the wonder of it at best. I think you probably leave here a little sleepy and bored as you listened to some near 30-year-old just flap his jaw for a while, or maybe grumpy, albeit maybe even moral, the grumpy old man on the porch saying, get off my lawn, okay? That's at best. At worst, at worst, you may leave here if you miss this gospel continuing to justify besetting sin to ultimately face the eternal righteous holy wrath of God who by His grace put your backside in that seat this morning to save you from it. And we have in this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's where we're going to be this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 1, just right there at the top. We have the clearest, most concise 
presentation of the good news to save your soul and to renew your soul that we ever have in the Bible. It's the earliest creed. And I want to handle it as such. And I want to pray now that by God's grace you would hear it as such as well. Will you guys pray with me? Father, would your name be made holy this morning? As we open your scriptures, God, speak. Speak into this moment. Lord, to every limitation that I know that I have, every weakness that I know that I have, would you redeem it, Lord, so that this gospel might come out with clarity. That you might open the ears of some to hear for the very first time, to see for the very first time the beauty of this gospel. Or would you soften hearts, maybe those jaded hearts that have tasted and seen of your goodness. Lord, remind us again. Lord, I pray above all else that you would be glorified and that your gospel would be preached. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Just to set up a little bit of the context, uh, 1 Corinthians is the first of, I think, probably three letters to the church in Corinth, and so it's fitting uh, for us to talk about it today. Some of you guys will get that joke in a little bit. Not Corinth, Texas, Corinth, Texas. I still have been here for over two years and no idea how to say it here. Um, but I'm going to call it Corinth is a port city in Greece, which meant it was central and it was a hub and it was actually a, a very important place, not just for culture and diversity and arts and, and, and economic influence but, uh, uh, and, and religious, but it was a hub for the gospel and Paul saw it as such. That this was going to be a critical place that for the gospel to come in and make an impact. And that it was going to be a critical place for the gospel to go out to all the different parts of the world. It says in Acts chapter 18, you can write that down, you can go back and look at it sometime if you want. This is the relationship between Paul and Corinth. It says that he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we already see a diverse place. It says that he stayed there for uh, about a year and a half, teaching the word of God, especially in synagogues and places like that. He built relationships with people. Now, uh, think where you were a year ago or a year and a half ago. Like, he posted up there for quite a while. He knew these people well. And after he moved on from there and, and, and had uh, started ministries and churches and in different places, he got word that things weren't going well in Corinth. In Corinth, there was division in the church, which is something maybe even some in this room are familiar with, have walked through. There was scandal. Sex was not being viewed in the way that God designed it to be. There was even a young man sleeping with his stepmother. There's a mixing up of cultural influences with the church, and, 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 and there was a, a word that we use called syncretism, where that was influencing the way that they were thinking about who God is in a false way that was not consistent with the scriptures whatsoever. There was chaotic worship services. If you look a little earlier in chapter 14, verse 33, Paul was very clear. God is not a God of confusion, but peace, that there needed to be clarity and peace. And when you step in a church 
church service, there needs to be a peace and clarity about what's going on. But what really Paul devoted a lot of attention to, to, and I think saved for closer to the back end of this letter for emphasis sake, is that he heard that there was a lot of weird and confusing teaching about the resurrection going on. Now, to be fair, resurrection, I, to the Corinthians, it's a weird thing to try to figure out, all right? Like, most people that are dead aren't coming back, okay? So it, it would, to, to be fair, we can't just look at the Corinthians and say that's ridiculous, right? We can, we can see how maybe there's some struggles with this, but Paul claimed that this is an essential thing. Like, we can't afford to be wrong on this. It's a vital thing. We cannot lose this. Uh, uh, quite a while later, Luther comes along and he reacts to this passage and he says that to deny this very passage has to be, you have to come to a point of denying that God is God. And so the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection in particular, is critical and crucial. And so Paul actually takes a strange approach as he's addressing this. He, he doesn't appeal simply to reason, not just to the intellect, though there is logical grounds to believe in the resurrection. We'll get there here in a little bit. And, and he doesn't just proof text. Like he doesn't just refer to other passages of Scripture primarily, though he does say that all this is according to the Scriptures and that there are scriptural grounds to trust and believe in the resurrection. But he doesn't appeal to reason. He doesn't just proof text. He, he simply reminds them of what they've already professed to believe. And all of this faithlessness, division, sex, mixing up culture and chaotic worship and weird ideas about the resurrection and all of this faithlessness going on in Corinth, the root of it all is forgetfulness. They forgot the essence of the gospel, of the good news. Let it not be so with us. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I would remind you, brothers, of this gospel. What does this word mean, this gospel? Gospel is, is a word to be taken as exceedingly good news. By definition, it is good news, something outside of your world that comes in, invades your world, and completely alters the world, your own world, in a positive direction. It, it, it gives you a new lens through which to experience all of the world. This is the gospel. It, it's used in some passages in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus refers to it uh, in reference to himself, but Paul uses it a ton. First Peter refers to it once. It shows up once in Revelation. There's a consistency with what the gospel is and how it refers to Jesus, but Paul uses it powerfully and consistently and a ton. It's a shorthand way for him of saying the good news of all that God is in the person of Jesus Christ, in the plan of God, 
Through the virgin birth of Christ, the holy, righteous, and perfect life of Christ, the willing laying down of his life, the wrongful crucifixion, the sacrificial death, the miraculous, eternal, life-giving possibility exploding onto this planet from the cosmos and that it's all for you. God's sovereign, eternal plan revealed in love for you. And it magnifies His glory. The gospel is a shorthand way of saying all of that and more. The gospel, that word gospel is a beautiful word. And we should never tire of all it entails to us and for us. And he says, this gospel that I preached to you. And in our translations, maybe you have a different English translation from the Greek that says something. But I think sometimes we can miss what's happening here. It, it, that word preached comes from the actual word gospel here. And so to the readers in the church in Corinthians, as they gathered around, somebody read this letter from Paul it might have sounded something like, this gospel that I gospelized to you. The, the nature of the word, the gospel, is that it's transmitted. A piece of what it is to be good news is that it's passed from one to another. It's set in motion. It's a verb. It's given action. And so it's preached. It's transmitted. It's gospelized. But it's also received. Let's look at what happens when it's received. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. We've got three clauses here. One, that you received it. At one time and in one place, you received it. And, and, and I don't know kind of where you're at. It's hard sometimes for me to pinpoint when that moment was when I received it. And maybe that's where you're at. You grew up in a Christian home or whatever. But at one time in one place, the Spirit stepped in at some point and shifted your will to pursue sinful things and instead pursue Him. At one time, one place, you received it. Good news, listen, the good news does not seep through some weakness or fragility in our sinful flesh by osmosis. That's not how it happens. It is received. Wills shift. And so this is one of the reasons why, as a family pastor, we look for in Redeemer Kids and in Redeemer Student Ministry, faith to become students and children's own. We look for a moment when they receive this good news. Not just receive it, but believe it. Amen. We do identify those things and we celebrate that and, and hope to celebrate it as a church in baptisms. I hope we have many in the next year and in the following years and in the next decade and in the next century. I hope for some of you this morning that you would receive that gospel, and that that one time and one place would be this morning. But it's not just relevant to one time, one place, or to your past, but also presently. He says, this gospel that I preached to you, which you received, but also in which you stand. As a present reality for grammar nerds in the room like me, this one's given in the perfect. 
Okay, as it relates to time, right here, right now, as it relates to confidence, with certainty, established, immovable. Some people in this room do not feel immovable in their faith this morning. I have to keep moving. Not only received or in which you stand presently, but also you are being saved. Continually in a process of a final future salvation. You're saved now when you received it, but you're on a trajectory. The gospel has a path for you. Like a ball being kicked off a kicker's foot in a football game towards the goalposts of eternity. It's a cheesy illustration. We'll move on. But it does have a condition. Not just that you have received, that you stand in, and by which you are being saved. There is a condition there. Look, if you hold fast the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. If you hold fast. Implication, if you're not holding fast to this world, you are not being saved. Make no mistake. We need this gospel again and again and again and again. And what's the alternative? You believed in vain. You had other motives. You had other motives for saying or professing that you believed this gospel. Maybe it was status or reputation or to fit in and run with the crowd or to not be a distraction. Or to hide some sort of shame. Maybe it was something as simple as material things like money. Maybe it was influence or power. We've seen this time and time again and even this week. And another artist that I follow for a very long time in the Christian music industry. The Christian music industry is coming to an absolute reckoning with this. Now, notice I said the Christian music industry, not the church. We're seeing that some believed in vain. Artists and executives who have manipulated a Christian market of the church, they're dropping like flies. And what we're finding out is oftentimes there were other motives behind this. Not the glory of God. Not a true belief. For Paul, believe in vain is like an oxymoron. Like that, he's using this for emphasis. You may have received it and it may have come into the intellect. You could even articulate it, but you never actually believed it. Hold fast to this word means you're being saved now. You stand currently in it. And you look at that one moment as a miraculous power of God when you first received it. And you hold fast to that word. You hold fast to that gospel. So let's dig into what is the substance of this gospel. What is the the substance, the essence? What's the actual words, the contents of this gospel? Look with me, verse 3. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also Received, And we'll just stop there for a sec, just one, one second. Th- this is not all that is to go into the Christian life. This is not all of the gospel, but this is primary. This is first. This is fundamental. This is essential. 
You deny this, you deny God, you deny the gospel. And so we have to get this right. This is why he says this is of first importance. Let's move on. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive. Implication, you can go talk to them. Although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Four fundamental truths of absolute historical reality. One, Christ died. Two, he was buried. Three, he rose after the third day. Four, he was seen. Let's unpack each of those. First, Christ died. He didn't just die. He died for our sins, it says here. There was a purpose to it. This is sacrificial love accomplished. This is agape type love, not just brotherly love, not just erotic type love. This is sacrificial love, like laying your life down, giving up everything for the sake of somebody else. Sacrificial agape love accomplished. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover every single sin that you have committed. Every single sinful thought, even one that you haven't even thought of or committed yet. Every burden of guilt, every ounce of shame, the blood of Jesus sufficient to cover. And he says this is in accordance with the scriptures. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system that we see unpacked in our Bibles That entire sacrificial system of atonement exists for us to make sense of this reality. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, implying he was really dead. He was actually dead. No pulse. The price of your sin in that moment is absolutely hands down fully paid. If the wages of sin are death, it's paid off. The tomb assures us that our sin is carried to the grave, not us. Because he was buried on our behalf. Not only did he die, not only was he buried, that certainly wasn't the end of the story. He has been raised. Here's the perfect tense again. He was raised on that third day. He is raised currently, right now, alive, and always will be for all time alive. Death could not hold him. On that third day, death died. It was defeated. There's now not only no guilt in life because of the death for our sins, but there's absolutely no fear in death because it cannot be defeated. There was actual real oxygen pumping through his lungs. And so now death is no longer a consequence of sin as we saw in Genesis 3, but it's a vehicle to eternal life. 
And so God says to Satan on that third day when Jesus rose, he he says to Satan, as Joseph does to his brothers, you meant it for evil against me, death, but I, God, meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. That's in Genesis chapter 50. Not only was he raised, but there's proof of it. He was seen. Cephas, then the 12, then 500, then James, then the apostles, then Paul. He even name drops Cephas and James. You can talk to these guys. He even says of the 500, most of them are still alive. Go talk to them. Hear from them. Ask what they saw. And then he says, he appeared straight to me, resurrected Jesus. So if you want to throw out everything that I'm saying here in reference to the division and the scandal and everything else going on in the church, then that's fine. But you got to hear it from me. He was seen. Eyewitness to this fact. The most undeniable fact in the study of Christian history is that people actually believed that they saw resurrected Jesus. Even in, even in my religious pluralist, uh, religious studies program in my undergrad, they would have to admit that there were people that actually believed that they saw a resurrected Jesus. Like, that is an undeniable fact. And so the question is, and the only grounds you have to come up against that is that, like, like were they all crazy? Did they all make this up? You have to make that case against at least, according to Paul here, 515 people. I think he's actually probably talking about more. Good luck. There's not that much insanity that you can attribute to that group of people. Listen, there is absolute, hands down, airtight reason to, to believe this is reality. These four premises, Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, and that he appeared and was seen, can all be founded on historical evidence. You might have a hard time with the fact that he rose on the third day, but that doesn't account for the fact that the tomb is absolutely empty. Or that his opponents were wondering, uh, maybe the body was stolen and couldn't find it. You can't deny either or any of those four fundamental truths. And you can arrive, listen, you can arrive at any of these on purely historical or logical grounds without ever presupposing the authority of this book. The argument And evidence on these four premises that Christ died, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day and appeared and was seen is absolutely airtight. There's enough evidence to intellectually accept this reality, but the gospel cuts deeper. It runs contrary to what makes sense. It does make sense. It does make logical sense. It makes sense of historical reality, but it goes deeper. It's not just going to stay in the head is going to move to the heart. And so you ask how. Let's look at Paul. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me, it was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The gospel is received and it's believed against all odds. He says, as to one untimely born. He uses this simile-shaping device, like as to one untimely born. Or, or maybe a translation says, it's like somebody that was born at an inopportune time. And he uses this simile-shaping device at one other point in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 4, he says, uh, <laughs> to compare us or to compare the church to being like the scum of the world okay so what's coming not pretty he says as to one untimely born this would be used as an insult in the ancient world it'd be used as an insult to refer to an abortion a miscarriage or maybe a premature birth and Paul takes it on himself to say, hey, against all odds, like this is what most people would recognize as most vulnerable and powerless, have little influence. Like this is how God saw me and stepped in with his grace. And, and just as an aside, there's perhaps no more powerful New Testament passage to communicate God's affection for these little ones. And so we should treasure this passage but he takes this on himself he says i'm the least i'm unworthy to be called an apostle i was a persecutor by every standard of the world i was the most deserving of wrath i, I had the most cause for fear i'm the most vulnerable to anxiety threats depression bodily harm whatever it is but by the standard of the grace of god i am what i am by the standard of the grace of God, I know exactly who I am. You do not just get here. You don't simply get here purely intellectually. I'm not convinced. It has to cut deeper. You have to have a posture of what we call in Redeemer Student Ministry, humble confidence. I did nothing to earn it. See, I worked harder than any of them, yet at the same time, nothing's going to shake it. Why? Because it's not me, it's the grace of God in me. And so he sees himself as totally unworthy, yet being used by God. And this is how he sees his role in the gospel. Look with me, verse 11. Then Corinthians, whether it was I or they, just meaning somebody else teaching to them. So we preach, and so you believed. He's saying, this is the gospel that I preach to you. If somebody's preaching something besides this, they're not preaching the gospel. But also remember, that's the gospel that you believed. Somebody preached it, you believed it. The gospel demands to be shared. There's a transmission here. There's a preaching, there's a receiving. If you're a believer in here right now, there's a tree that traces back to this moment, right? 
We all see our spiritual lineage in this family tree. And that this gospel demands to be shared as the kingdom expands on this earth. George Lyle knew this. In observance of Black History Month, the International Mission Board doing this, there's an insert in your bulletin, I think I have one here, that unpacks a little bit about him. In addition to, um, actually I don't know that there's, there's probably not a ton of information on George Lyle here. Your kids are getting it in Redeemer Kids. If not, uh, you don't have kids, that's okay, go pick one up. You can do a coloring page, that's fine. <laughs> there's videos online on the IMB website where you can see and hear the story of this man who did not sit and wait to share this gospel. All odds stacked against him. A freed slave, a black man, and a country hostile towards him viewed him less than human and and found a way to maneuver and, and navigate in this life to hop on a ship to go take this gospel. Some 10 years, like he just said, before William Carey, who's, who's uh, praised as the father of modern missions. 20 years before Adonai Judson is hailed as the first American missionary. Not the case. George Lyle did it first. And I love Carey. I love Judson. Incredibly powerful missionaries and uh, stories in my life. And so I'm not discrediting them. I'm saying guys like George Lyle, they didn't see him wait. They saw themselves as a part of this gospel, not just to be believed, but to be passed on. George Lyle saw himself as the least likely to be used by God, and yet at the same time, the most equipped to take this gospel to a most hostile place. I pray that the same is the case for you. Believe this gospel. Christ died for your sins, was buried, carried your sin to grave on the third day, defeated death, and was seen and is living now. I pray that you believe this gospel. It might take you to a far off land. It might take you to an island like it did George Lyle. It might not. It might take some of what's most precious to you. It may take your children to a far-off land. Will you be okay with that? And God's going to get the glory. Don't forget this gospel. Remind yourself of it every single day. And the question then is, how does this gospel, how does this good news ground us in this ever-changing world that we're in? Listen, I think the sovereign plan of God was on to something instant, constant, mobile, and global before anybody, whoever it is, said those words to me. The gospel, the good news, is instant. It doesn't take time to process the reality. Jesus is alive, right? Like, that's incredibly good news. If, if it took time to... To, to explain and describe, then, then, then it would be confusing news, not good news. No, the good news is Jesus is alive. Death isn't the end of it for any of us in this room. It's instant. It comes. It changes you. And maybe that's you today. It has been preached, I hope. Now it's for me. I know my own weaknesses. But receive it. 
Confess. Turn from sin. Run towards God instantly. You can do it now. That opportunity is there. I pray that the Spirit is shifting and changing your will in this moment. It's constant. The risen Savior reminds us that there will never be a time when the gospel becomes irrelevant. No matter what changes in this world. There will never be a time when the good news of Jesus loses its weight or its wonder. It's the sovereign plan of God. Come what may in this world. He is really alive forever. We're dealing with eternity here. It's constant. It's not changing. It's mobile. The gospel is on the move. By nature, that word gospel is transmitted and received. And why would you not want to participate in that? And it's global. There's no boundary on it. It took George Lyle to Jamaica. It's taking, if you look in that insert in your folder, there's three families that are highlighted by the International Mission Board. The Lee family going to Tanzania. The Reese family in Brazil, a place that is very near and dear to my heart. And the Watson family in Germany. And you can look in there. There's very specific things to pray for each of those families for in their ministry and what they're doing and their household even. Listen, the gospel knows no bounds. And so whether it's through praying, whether it's through giving, whether it's through simply educating yourself on it, participate in this. Against all odds, all racial odds, against all geographical, political boundaries, this gospel's going forward. This thing is global. And so pray for these specific things. Yeah, give, pray, go. Remember this gospel. Treasure it. Believe it. Again and again and again and again. And then gospelize it. Set it in motion. It never changes. The reality that Jesus is alive, it doesn't get better than this. Eternal life that we just sung about, it doesn't get better than that. This is the best news that you will ever hear in your life. No matter how much this world changes, this gospel will not. Pray with me. Lord, wake us up to that reality. Wake us up to the all that you are in this beautiful gospel. Lord, I pray that if there's any here that you would, any here that that have not believed, that you would save them. Let them not leave here today without talking to somebody and and, and wondering what are the next steps on this. This is the expansion of your kingdom is the purpose of this gospel, that people would see and recognize and savor and taste and see who you are and how good you are. And you are good, Lord. I pray that you would be glorified in this church as we take this gospel and set it in motion. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name.